Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? That's what it is to be a slave. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Ten Houser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. And that was the classic final scene from the futuristic 1982 Blade Runner and the late Rutger Hauer's melancholy soliloquy, Tears in the Rain, and the impetus for the follow-up Blade Runner 2049 with that stunning cinematography by Roger Deakins for which he won an Oscar. And the multi-talented Deakins is our guest on the show coming up to talk about his photography as well. But now on Arts Express. Good evening. My name's Garland Nixon. Plenty to talk about. Let's start here. There was an arrest of a gentleman that I've had on this show more than one time, an indictment, a man by the name of Omali Yashatelli, you might have recalled. He runs a group called the African People's Socialist Party out of St. Petersburg, Florida, and also out of uh, St. Louis. And um, it's uh, the, also known as the Uhuru Movement. They, work, they believe in reparations. Um, they are socialists. They do not believe in um, uh, the capitalist system that we're that is currently collapsing that we live in, um, and they are anti-imperialist. They are not happy about the United States having 850 bases around the world, and their position is that the United States is imposing its will on other countries that doesn't want them, and they oppose that. And constitutionally, they have a, every right to do all of those things and to say all of those things and take whatever political positions that they choose. I've had Omali on here. He started off with SNCC back in, was interesting to people before, we're talking about SNCC. Omali started back in um, the 60s with SNCC. He's actually 82 years old now, and he started his organization years ago, and they're in, they've been doing what they do for 50 years. 50 years they've been doing what they do, and now the DOJ comes along who um, breaks into his house on a morning, searches everything, comes back, and comes up with these absurd charges that they're conspiring with the Russians. You know, and, and here's my first thought. People are like, what do you think? Well, number one, didn't the FBI go after Marcus Garvey and arrest him and lock him up? Yes. How about uh, Jack Johnson, the boxer back in the 20s? What did they do? The FBI trumped up a case that because he took a girlfriend across state lines, they said he was transporting prostitutes across state lines, locked him up for that. Right. What about Paul Robeson? You see, no, so see what they did to him, took his passport, you name it. Right. What? Let's go to Martin Luther King. They accused him of being trained by the communists. Malcolm X, they accused him of being a communist sympathizer for Cuba. On and on, every black leader that there was, every black person that stood up and said, man, I don't think things are fair. Oh, well, it has to be Russia has to be behind you. Oh, the communists must be behind you. Black people can't look around in America and figure out, hey, man, I'm not getting a fair shot. My people have not getting a fa gotten a fair shot. 
not. We were enslaved. We lived in apartheid circumstances, and we were and 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 deliberately driven into poverty, deliberately driven into um, lack of education in dire circumstances, and no one, nothing was ever done to fix that. Like I said, like the um, uh, indigenous people, you go on it right now. What is it like? Thirty percent of the people on these indigenous um, reservations don't have running water. What a disgrace! The United States has a right to fix that. They, they, you got running water all over most cities and towns, but in the indigenous uh, um, uh, reservations, inexcusable, inexcusable. So Molly Yashitali was a man that said, this is not right. This is not fair. Things need to change. I'm taking a different political position. I'm taking a different ideological position because these things do not work for me as a black man, and I don't think we're getting treated right. And they ran people. And here's the thing that wasn't liked about him. He was like me neither Democrat nor Republican. He felt that these two parties were really one war party, one imperialist war party. He wasn't going to be any part of them. And they actually ran people for office. And they're now they're claiming, oh, he was working for the Russians. He, they've been doing the same thing for 50 years, working in the poorest black communities, having, um, whether it's hard for them to get fresh vegetables and fruits, they have these farmers markets so you can get fresh vegetables and fruits, fruits helping uh, services for pregnant women in black communities, um, building basketball courts for kids to have recreation in black communities, doing all this stuff in the poorest black communities. And guess what? Oh, well, he's a Russian uh, whatever. Um, and you've heard him on the show. The man is brilliant, and he's 82 years old. And now, after working, doing the same thing his entire life, now, politically, the Biden administration goes after this guy like they have all of the rest of them. Ain't no difference. Well, this time he really is a Russian bot. Yeah, Malcolm X was too. Paul Robeson was too. W.E.B. Dubois, same thing about him. He's working for the Soviets. Every single black leader, it's the same thing. And every time they're like, yeah, but this time it's really true. And the sad, pathetic thing is, every now and then they find some black folks to, that 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 will that will that will buy into it. It's crap. And for those of you who know, he came on on the show. He said, look, you know, his position is this. How dare they do this? I don't need Russians to tell me that I'm not getting a fair shot and my people aren't getting a fair shot. That's his position. He said it on this show. He's His position is, I've never lived a day as a black man that I wasn't facing oppression in the United States. I don't need the Russians to tell me that. I don't need anybody to tell me that, that it's a disgrace. And here's the thing about it. Let me, let me look that, read down this. This is on AP, right? And they say that, uh, let me read this, some of this stuff they say. It says, now listen to this, the Hoover Group did have a candidate who ran unsuccessfully for St. Petersburg City Council in 2019, Aritha Akil Kanyan, who is not charging the indictment. She held a news conference in 22 in which she defended Russia, saying world colonial powers have been collaborating against Russia for more than a century. Here's the thing about it. While I agree with her, here's the bottom line. You're going to arrest black folks now for saying that? See, that's where we are. That's where we are. When a black person says, hey, I, I, no, I don't, th that's what they, exactly what happened to Paul Robeson. Exactly. Paul Robeson said, look, you all are crazy. Y'all want to start a war with the Soviet Union? We will all die. We will all die in a nuclear war. Let's not do that. I disagree with it. Oh, there, I hate Russia. He was like, and what did Paul Robeson say? He said, I went to Russia. I performed in houses, and, and they were wonderful people. They were nice people, some of the most wonderful people I ever met. And they hated him for that. He wasn't allowed to go to Russia to interact with Russians and to like Russian people. And because of that, and to say, I'm not going to join this I hate Russia stuff, that was Paul Robeson's position. And he said, when I went over to there, I faced terrible discrimination here. I went over there, I didn't face that. You're not going to ask me to put these people down. That was Paul Robeson's position. And of course, he paid a price. Same with the uh, Uhuru movement, right? Now, uh, uh, Here's the thing. Much of the alleged cooperation, so they're cooperating with Russia, involves support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In March 2022, Yeshatela, that's the guy Omali, held a news conference in which he said, quote, the African People's Social Socialist Party calls for unity with Russia in its defensive war in Ukraine against the world colonial powers. He also called for the independence of the Russian-occupied Donetsk region in eastern Ukraine. 
That's constitutionally protected speech. He has a right to say that. If you don't like that, you can ask him why. He can justify his position. First of all, constitutionally, a person should be, I would be happy. Somebody, I've already always said, be happy. Come on. Call in. You know my position on the the the, the uh that the Ukraine. Uh, I've always been open with my position on that. The the United States overthrew the government of Ukraine and installed a puppet government. How are you going to argue that Ukraine is somehow an independent country when you overthrew the damn government and stuck in a puppet regime? And that's that's I, I want anybody to to say to me, no, the government didn't do that. The members of the United States government, Victoria Nuland, was recorded. You can go on YouTube right now and find the recordings. Two weeks before the government of Ukraine was overthrown, she was naming who the new people were going to be. She was saying, well, we could have this person, but that, that wouldn't be a good idea, but we should have this person. And how about that? So you tell me. The United States government is literally naming who's going to be in the government after the government is thrown, overthrown, before it's overthrown. And then the government is overthrown and the exact people that she said would be in there. And what do you know? The government's overthrown and all these Americans suddenly come rushing into Ukraine. Hunter Biden was that's when he came and all these Americans suddenly rushing to Ukraine, be, get on the boards of companies, join all over the place. The United States starts arming Ukraine, building bases, shipping in missiles as soon as the government's overthrown. And you're going to tell me the United States didn't have anything to do with that? Thank you, Garland Nixon. And coming up next on the show. Among the most celebrated cinematographers, Roger Deakins, known for among many productions, The Shawshank Redemption, Air America, music documentaries, and his Eric Clapton and Marvin Gaye music videos, along with the Coen brothers, joins us on the show. And to talk about as well his current exhibitions and tour of his lifelong photography collection, Byways. First, a little of one of his feature films, Sid and Nancy, then Roger Deakins. Welcome, Sex Pistol. Your mom says you're a nice boy. Any comments? <laughs> Who the hell do you think you are? Sid Fisher. This is my girlfriend, Nancy. You like me, don't you? Sid needs more than a mere bass player. He's a fabulous disaster. Vicious is the sex pistols. I couldn't live without you. I'm your best friend. Hello, Roger Deakins, and welcome to the show. Well, thank you. And what are your thoughts, looking back on the origins of this collection, connected to your film school rejected application, and yet you're among the most esteemed cinematographers, but that led you to take these photographs instead at that time. Well, they're not all from that time. I mean, I, I, I was taking photographs when I, I went away from painting. I wanted to be a painter, really. That's what I spent a lot of my childhood doing, painting. And um, I went to art college, and that was my intent you know, to follow up uh, with painting or sculpture or something like that. And there are, but I discovered photography. And um, so for a while, I imagined myself as a, a photojournalist, really. Uh, you know, if you do, a lot of things go through your head, you know. Mm. <clears throat> and and uh, when I heard that the National Film School was opening in uh, the UK, and I felt that was the first time I'd ever seen or felt an opportunity to get in the film industry and I'd always loved films as a kid mm. and growing up and um, 
So, yeah, I applied and I, I didn't get in. But luckily, during the year that in between that and applying again, I got this, I got this job at this art center photographing rural life. So some of the photographs in the book are from that time. But um, ever since then, I, I have been taking photographs um, on and off, you know. And what can you say about the choice of title for this collection of photographs, Byways? <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. It's sort of, it, there was, the choice was a bit of a problem, really, because, you know, there's been so many books of photographs over the years, and, you know, where do you go? And I was just kind of writing an intro to the book, and I was writing my photographs that kind of from here, there, and everywhere along the highways and byways that I traveled. And, and um, that just struck me that byways was kind of a good title, really. And why have you decided to create this collection and why now, at this time in your life, along with describing them as personal and now sharing them with the world? Well, yeah, I didn't really think about it like that. I, I've got, I had these photographs and, and after a while I was thinking, well, do I have enough to make a, a book? What do I do with them? I don't particularly like putting them online. And I've always liked having, you know, a hard copy of a book. I like looking at photographs in a book. And that's how it happened, really, yeah. And it's often said that the real director of a film is the cinematographer. What is your reaction to that? And how do you view that notion? Oh, it's the first time I've heard that, really. I suppose the expertise of the director and what field the director's strength is in. You know, I mean, some directors are very much um, script writers and, and have not got necessarily the experience of, uh, you know, the visual storytelling. So, you know, it, it varies from film to film. But to say that the cinematographer is sometimes more the author, I mean, that, that doesn't make sense to me at all. You know, the director is the director. Every film is a director's film. And what is it in particular that attracts you to the life of the working class in your images? Well, that was a time, you know, most of those photographs you, you mentioned there were when I was um, photographing farm or, uh, rural life in North Devon. You know, I, I, I don't know, I, I'm just drawn to... I guess I'm drawn, it's the same, the subjects of the films that I'm drawn to work on are really about regular people. They're not, you know, by and large, they're not sci-fi films or superhero movies. They're films about people. Even, even Blade Runner was a film about a man, in this case an android, struggling with his own identity and, and, and a kind of very personal film, even though it was set in this kind of extraordinary... Um, futuristic world, you know. And was there something about the first Blade Runner that drew you in to be part of the sequel? No, actually almost turned me against it because the idea of of trying to uh, follow up uh, the Ridley Scott's original and Jordan Cronenworth's work on that original, the idea of doing that was kind of daunting. But when when I spoke to Denny about it and voiced those kind of concerns, he said, well, no, I, I, he, he wanted just to make a film that was true to its own identity. It just happened to be story-wise connected to the original. Yeah, so that's, that's how we approached it, really. There are also quite wonderful touches of humor in your images, like, for instance, capturing actress Judy Dench's shoes sitting by themselves next to an empty chair on a deserted highway where you happen to be filming her as the mysterious M and Daniel Craig as James Bond back then, somewhere out of sight, unseen at that moment in time. What can you say about that? Yeah, I wish there was more, really. That's what I re really like. I, like. I like humor and irony. I mean, the shot of Judy's shoes by her chair on uh, was... Yeah, during the film of Skyfall. And I don't often take photographs during <clears throat> working on a movie. In fact, that's probably the only one I think that I've taken. And But I couldn't resist it. It was such a, I thought, such a wonderful sort of still life of <laughs> iconic car and the, and the, um, the chair and Judy's 
Judy's shoes. <laughs> set, set, set against the Scottish landscape. I couldn't resist it, really. That's the only photograph in the book that is kind of connected to the, my film work. And <laughs> I couldn't resist putting it in, really. And what attracted you to Albuquerque creatively with your photographs? I, I just love the landscape. And uh, obviously I've had, I've got great joy from shooting films there. And, um, you know, on weekends during, during a shoot on, on a weekend or sometimes in the evening, I would just wander off with my, my camera. I mean, I tend to go off just on long walks or trips around the countryside just, just to look around, really. I like exploring places, but I, I would take my camera and sometimes I would, I would find a shot that I, that I, you know, wanted to take. How would you compare and contrast your creative inspiration as a cinematographer as opposed to a photographer? You know, it's a totally different way of thinking. I mean, a, 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 a film is a, on a film is a collaboration with a, a great number of people, not just a director. Whereas me, myself, wandering around and just without any sort of stress level, you know, I don't have to take a photograph and... I just choose, I choose completely by myself what I take a photograph of, which is very different from working on a movie. And how would you contrast your creative approach between an historically based film like Air America and, say, the surreal productions of the Coen brothers? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, really. When I first started in, in film, imagine working in documentary all the time. And then I imagine working in... in uh, in drama, that was kind of more connected, I suppose, with the sort of British kind of kitchen sink realism in a way, you know, extension of that. But as it turned out, I, I met up with uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen and we seemed to get on very well. And, well, I've worked on a number of their films over the years and, of course, they're very different. Um, but uh, I, I soon realised there's a way of <laughs> there's a way of talking about ordinary people in a much more you know a much more surreal stylized way it, 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 you know I don't think I necessarily need to work in in the kind of like the world of um, you know a Ken Loach or something I, I gradually got to understand that I enjoyed working in more surreal kind of more surreal palettes I suppose you could say you know and what would you like to convey to people with this collection <laughs> I don't know. As I said, it was a really personal idea to do it. I, I, I'm not. I'm not really trying to convey anything, frankly. <laughs> you know. Um, no, I'm not really. Uh, well, maybe to convey about yourself. Well, I mean, I find it. It. it it's. Yeah, it's been strange because it is kind of odd. You know, we've done a few exhibitions. You know, of, of my photographs, and it, it's kind of. It is kind of nerve-wracking in many ways, putting putting your very personal images up mm. on a on a wall or in the book. But um, I'm not really trying to convey anything, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am quite amazed and pleased that you know, not just people are interested in it because it's something that I've done and I have a reputation, I suppose, as a cinematographer. But actually, people relate to them as photographs, you know, and. Uh, you know, that's quite pleasing, really. And are you working on any new films now? Uh, frankly, no. Um, I've read a few things, but I, there's nothing that I've really kind of been drawn to. And the film industry, I think, is is changing quite dramatically. And, well, I mean, there's le the kind of films that I was usually drawn to, they have all but disappeared, really. You yeah. know, um, seems to be the cinemas now are showing you know, superhero movies and um, fantasy films. And I'm not really interested in that, you know? Yeah. So, as I say, we'll see what happens. And what is the different approach and experience for you musically between, say, crafting Sin and Nancy, your music documentaries, and your Marvin Gaye music video? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, music videos. I never shot commercials. I never really wanted to shoot commercials. I, I had, I don't know, I was kind of against that kind of world, really. 
But um, so in between jobs and and to make money, I would shoot music videos. It started off shooting concerts with other people. You know, often I would do second camera or whatever. You know, and it gradually got into. I, I shot a lot of music videos, and um, they were just a lot of fun. You know, um, like shooting a documentary. Often, yeah. some some were were very much like shooting a documentary. Others were very structured, and it was almost like shooting a little drama on a film set. So they they were a lot of fun. I think I learned a lot doing them, and and gained a bit of confidence, and met a lot of people. And so, um, I, did, did they influence doing Sid and Nancy? I don't know really. I mean, there's a few. Yeah, there's definitely a few scenes in Sid and Nancy concerts and stuff. But um, I, as I say, I think it's very different shooting a, a feature film to doing a music video, you know. Okay. Thank you so much, Roger Deakins, for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Nice talking to you. And more about Roger Deakins and his current photography exhibits and national tour is online at rogerdeakins.com. This is John Leguizamo, and I want to give a shout out to everybody. Get political. <laughs> Get your political on. This is John Leguizamo. on Arts Express, a new episode of Red Iowa with Peter Wise and his self-described armchair revolutionary wandering Scottish nomad across this country known as Globe Trotsky, interrogating together the world's situation and sorting it all out. So we're back recording again. All right. So uh, and in terms of uh, painting, I mean, you've got a, a wonderful, uh, you know, it's almost a gallery, this house, uh, which I absolutely love. Um, and there's lots of different styles, but the question I wanted to ask you was when did, 
when did painting and politics merge for you? Well, that's a, a really good question. I, I guess from the beginning when I restarted uh, or through recuperating from uh, injuries in the army, I just started painting. And uh, at that time I'd been radicalized. I think I spent well, my college years, which weren't college years, but when I was supposed to be in college. The dope smoking years, we the call them? The dope smoking years, yeah, 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 the dope smoking tour. Yeah, we'll, we'll edit that out later. No, 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 yeah, that's yeah. okay, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I want people to know it was a, it was a lot uh, weaker then. But did you inhale? <laughs> I did not have sex with that joint. No. I, uh, <laughs> anyway, what I can remember, right? So, uh, oh yeah. So I got involved with the Students for Democratic Society, otherwise known as the SDS, in '68. I think I joined a chapter in, in my six-week sojourn at college for the first time and uh, was a member in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, uh, which was a small chapter, but, uh, and uh, actually the college I went to was the first college north of, or on this side of the Mississippi to be occupied by black students. And I don't mean occupied in the sense they paid tuition, they just took over the school which was a great inspiration. And then uh, south of us was Iowa City, which was called Berkeley in the Midwest, and had a huge uh, radical population there. Um, it still does in some ways, but, um, so I got involved with the SDS there, lots of demonstrations, that sort of thing, and radicalized, I guess, was the term back then. Although white radicals were, were, were sort of pseudo-radicals because none of us would admit we, uh, Marx was appealing to us. It was strictly an anti-war kind of thing, right? And if we'd had any balls back then, we said, yeah, we're communists, you know, but that's not how it was because of the impression and what, stuff. And what does the 60s mean to you in terms of, of your own political journey? Well, that uh, you know, activism works, I guess. Um, you pay a price for it, um, but uh, if somebody doesn't do it, um, you know, the world goes to hell a lot faster than it's going, you know. Um, certainly it's always an education. When you're working with people in committees and that sort of thing, it's a socializing sort of sort of thing. And, uh, you know, getting out on the streets and throwing rocks and Montauk cocktails is kind of fun every once in a while. So uh, it shows you that thought has to be changed into action according to Marxist principles. It doesn't do any good if, if you sit home and, uh, you know, you hypothesize about the revolution and certainly there are uh, there are many issues uh, mostly among blacks because this country's built on black slavery um, but uh, at the time the war was raging and people were coming home in body bags and there's nothing like that to motivate you and I was certainly draftable at that time I just missed it so. I should point out that Globe Trotsky is, a, is an armchair revolutionary, you know, <laughs> uh, so strictly from the theoretical school of, uh, no, but I take your point. That well, let's just say you're in the ads and prop uh, <laughs> department. Yes, yes, yes. You're not on the front line. Yeah. It, it's interesting that you, uh, you talk about those days and it strikes me now that, you know, certainly on the left, you know, there is no comparable movement at the moment among students. Uh, you know, how would you... Why have we got to this stage in society where, you know, uh, people who go through education are not being, not being radicalized? Well, I mean, it's a special case back there in Vietnam. Uh, yeah. It was a single issue sort of thing for white people. They, uh, I, I think in the long run, save for some really uh, thoughtful uh, leftist people, uh, the plight of the black people in this country was not that significant. So there's this bifurcation which closes after the war ends and all the white radicals went back to their middle class homes and while the black people were still in the same condition when they came out. So um, how do you account for that? Because there's a, f I mean whites are still affluent and blacks are still poor but there's no war going on so now that the, they're trying to crush the student vote I think you're going to see more um, uh, opposition to the government but back then it was a life and death sort of thing I think for white people. And yet the, the, the wars haven't ended, you know. No, of course not. Uh, but, but, well, that's the funny thing. When I was, uh, when I was draft age, um, everybody hated the draft. But the draft had this um, effect of democratizing and, and mixing people uh, involuntarily. But they uh, uh, disbanded the draft and now the American military is just a mercenary force, basically. It's like in one of those strange science fiction things where you colonize the rest of the universe, you know, with your jackboots. 
And um, how would you describe uh, the state of U.S. democracy at the moment? Well, there is none, really. I mean, it's just a sham. One man, one vote never existed in this country because there's always conditional things about, especially when the vote, uh, uh, you had to be a property owner back in the day. You couldn't be a woman, you couldn't be black, you couldn't be Indian. In that sense, is improved, but at the same time, corporations have started to manage politicians rather than the other way around. And that shift probably happened around the turn of the last 1900s, I think, when uh, right at, uh, Theodore Roosevelt was pretty a Democrat as a Republican in terms of people's rights, but after that I think things went down. And uh, right now there is really, it, it's a mockery of, of, of Athenian democracy anyway. And we know that nothing is perfect, but um, it's deteriorated quite a bit with gerrymandering by both parties and uh, you know, the sense that there's no independent party. It's, it's two sides of the same coin politically. So. Yeah, you can go to the polls and vote, and, and we have a universal vote now, but um, you're voting for the same party with two different names. Basically. And any any uh, take on how the media... Polices you know, itself? Well, involves itself in democracy or well, interferes? I mean, <laughs> it makes me laugh because, I mean, you look at CNN and MSNBC, you know, and they're, and they're criticizing Fox all the time, but they're kissing the same asses at different times, yeah. so... Uh, line up, uh, you know, to uh, to the corporations that sponsor them and uh, put adverts on their uh, things. So, I, uh, yeah, I mean, the media is a joke. It, in fact, that's the saddest thing about it because the media is supposed to be independent, and it's not. Hold, hold politicians to account. <laughs> yeah, it should. It should that should that's be what a role. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 That was Steppenwolf's America, taking us into our final deep dive presentation today, Dirty Work. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Some time ago, I broadcast a humorous piece called A Child's Garden of Denial. And its premise was the fact that in the United States, what Gore Vidal famously called the United States of Amnesia, the one incontrovertible fact about life in the U.S. is this. The standard of living that capitalism allows is built on the misery, torture, exploitation, and killing of millions of people around the world. Well, hell, how's that for a premise for a million laughs? And 
I did have to treat it humorously because for me it's pretty hard to swallow that simple fact. It's a fairly impossible fact to live with. How could we wake up every morning and function with that on our shoulders? Well, about a year ago, a journalist named A.L. Press dealt with the same theme, only not humorously, but journalistically. And he wrote a very interesting book called Dirty Work, which I've just caught up with. And so I'd like to share my thoughts about it with you and commend it to you. I don't agree with everything in the book, but a lot of it is very persuasive. The opening quote in the book is from James Baldwin, which says, quote, the powerless must do their own dirty work. The powerful have it done for them, unquote. Which is a simple yet devastating analysis of what power really means. And, and in his book, A.L. Press's thesis is that in order to sustain the capitalist empire, there are certain dirty jobs that society requires. Yet because the jobs are so shameful, they're hidden away from the sight of the rest of society, and those who do that work are considered shameful. The dirty workers are physically, morally, and psychically distanced from the rest of society. Nevertheless, the bulk of society gives both conscious and unconscious assent and encouragement for these workers to continue their dirty work, as long as the rest of society can escape any moral blames themselves. Press defines dirty work this way, quote, first it is work that causes substantial harm either to other people or to non-human animals and the environment, often through the infliction of violence. Second, it entails doing something that good people, the respectable members of society, see as dirty and morally compromised. Third, it is injurious to the people who do it. And last and most important, it is contingent on a tacit mandate from the good people who see this work as a necessary part of the social order, but don't explicitly assent to it, and if need be, disavow responsibility for it. For this to be possible, the work must be delegated to other people. And in the book, Press investigated three examples of dirty work, inside a prison, at a slaughterhouse and at a military base with remote drone operators. And what the three places have in common are that they are hidden away, the workers are low status, and branded as morally inferior by others, and yet they are considered vital for the society as is to function. And the author press did some dogged seeking out of people who do these jobs and spent hours in intimate conversation with them. And what he learned might be surprising. Time and again, the people doing the dirty work that press comes across are people who are aware of the moral implications of what they're doing. They're also aware that their choices are often much more limited than other people's choices are, including their accusers. And one's ability to stay clean morally is not so much a product of strong moral will, but of economic privilege, which affords one the luxury to make more moral choices. One of the drone operators that press interviews is bitter when she has to encounter a contingent of Code Pink activists who are demonstrating outside her base, telling her to give up her job as she walks to her car. She says, hell, do you think I have the same options as you to just get up and walk off my job? That's what she says to the people she sees as middle-class women who are screaming at her. Or take the section on prisons. Now, Press, and this, you have to have a strong stomach for this, Press interviewed a mental health counselor who worked at a prison where a mentally ill prisoner was horrifically murdered by guards who shoved him into a locked shower stall and deliberately scalded him to death. And the autopsy said... The prisoner had burns over 90% of his body, and his skin fell off at the touch. Now, this mental health counselor for the prisoners knew that the crime needed to be exposed, but she felt she was not in a position where she could do that. She was afraid to speak up. And in fact, when she attempted to find out more about what had happened, she faced retaliation from the guards. 
Dead flowers were put on her computer. Death threats appeared in her mailbox. There was a sudden disappearance of guards who were supposed to protect her when she was in a room with the most dangerous of prisoners. She knew that her keeping quiet was wrong, but she felt she had no choice. She had no other job opportunities in this small rural town. What she, like so many others who do dirty work, was experiencing was not just physical injury, but moral injury. And it messed her up for a long time. Though eventually she quit the job and moved to another state, she was haunted by the death and her lack of action for a long time. And there are similar accounts of slaughterhouse workers who have nightmares every night because of the brutal and savage treatment of the animals being slaughtered and the growing callousness of their co-workers. And yet, the authorities, the ones in charge, never charged the prison guards with any criminal felonies despite extensive press coverage. It was covered up as an accident. Now, there's a theme that comes up several times in the book, that those who point out the immorality of dirty work are sometimes insensitive to the bind that many people are in especially those in the rural communities where dirty work is often deliberately housed. They have few other economic choices, and that's one reason why the dirty work goes on. Now, it's easy to say, I would never do what person X is doing, but you can never answer questions like that until you're truly in the other person's shoes, in their economic and material circumstances. Because as the author says, quote, pinning the blame for dirty work on the people tasked with carrying it out can be a useful way to obscure the power dynamics and the layers of complicity that perpetuate their conduct. It can also deflect attention from the structural disadvantages that shape who ends up doing this work. Unquote. And it's a good point. It's a fair point. And yet. And yet. About a decade ago, I was part of a protest at Hancock Air Base in Syracuse, New York, where personnel were remotely operating drones for wars overseas and providing support work for that. And some of the speakers at that protest were some of the same people who had been arrested at Creech Air Base in Nevada, where press says that Code Pink was being arrogant. Well, in Syracuse, <laughs> We did a die-in right up at the edge of the base. There was a phalanx of police ready to dispel us. You know, it was almost comical in its way because most of us were white-haired older men and women. And I remember a few people in wheelchairs. And if anything, the crowd was super sensitive to the situation of the police. And the lead cop was actually trying not to escalate things, which was a pleasant change from the usual. He said he was caught in the middle and just trying to do his job, so please leave the area and so on. And the people who were talking with the cop were very conciliatory. I mean, they were saying, yes, we know you're not to blame directly, but we have to do our job just as you are doing yours. My point is, even though we were shouting to shut the base down and urging any soldiers we saw to resist and think through what they were doing, I don't think any of us thought the people themselves were dirty. We did understand, maybe more than most, the moral dilemma that people found themselves in. So the characterization of Code Pink that press paints smacks too much of the tales that we used to hear about protesters supposedly spitting in the face of returning Vietnam vets. It just didn't happen. Indeed, while the government was metaphorically spitting on vets by denying there was such a thing as PTSD and cutting aid to veterans, it was anti-war groups that pressed hardest for services to those soldiers who had been shafted. So I reject the idea that asking someone to reflect on the work they do is elitist. Yes, the fact that those who do dirty work have a much more limited array of options available to them is important and should arouse compassion for those who do it. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean dirty workers shouldn't be challenged. Moral options may be limited, but it could be helpful to point out those that do exist. You know, after that Syracuse protest, my friend Tom and I 
went to eat at a small diner in the town. Tom soon got in a discussion with the waitress, and it turned out, despite the American flags festooning the diner, she was worried about her brother at the base, and she took our leaflets, and she said she wanted to talk to her brother about this. So we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. Is the worker on the slaughterhouse line the problem, or the problem a system that destroys family farms and concentrates meat production into giant factory farms? Are the individual drone operators the problem, or an out-of-control military whose whole purpose is to kill to defend capitalism against all imagined threats? And yet, if the system is to be brought down, then there has to be mass refusal by individuals at all the choke points. So it seems to me collective action needs to be taken so that individuals feel safer to resist. It is a mess. It's a tangle. And that's deliberate. That's on purpose. As long as the contradictions can be hidden, the system can continue. A.L. Press has done an excellent job in laying out the material and psychological obstacles to truly understanding and doing what we know is right. And the book is unusually well-written and compelling. When thinking about this idea of moral injury, the one thing I found encouraging is that the very concept makes it clear that most of us do have an understanding of right and wrong, even when we feel helpless to do anything about it. And even with all the propaganda, even with all the coercion, even with all the material privation, even with all the attempted shunning and bribery, most people still have a moral center and a conscience that can be disturbed. Were we hopeless moral monsters, there could be no such thing as moral injury. And that I find hopeful. I've been talking about the book Dirty Work, written by A.L. Press, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express, with host Prairie Miller. That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.